Whenever you're talking with an unbeliever about the gospel, we should not be surprised, of course, that the gospel is offensive because at the heart of the truth of the gospel, there is a most cutting reality that every sinner must face. It is, of course, the stumbling block over which every sinner must fall. It is the truth that access to God as a sinner is impossible on our own. That's why the message is so offensive. There's no way to have access to God as a sinner. God cannot look upon sin, countenance sin. No sinner can exist in the presence of God, look upon God, and live. God is infinitely and perfectly holy, and everything that he has created that does not ultimately bring him glory by being righteous and holy will bring him glory by experiencing the judgment of his holiness and his justice. So when you're giving the gospel to someone and there's an inherent offense, it is simply that. They must stumble over the stumbling stone, which is Christ, because we're saying in the gospel, you don't have access to God apart from Christ. You don't have it. You cannot have it. I want to look tonight at the lessons that were taught to ancient Israel over and over and over and over again. You know, sometimes people want to take the New Covenant and read it back into the Old Testament, but actually the proper way to interpret the Scriptures is to read it forward. And that's because in the Old Testament you have foreshadowings and pictures and images and you have these types that represent a truth that is fulfilled in Christ and is a part of redemption. And these truths are illustrated in these shadowy ways and in these, these pictures, prefigures of the Old Testament. The most important of which is this reality that sinners have no access to God on their own. Look with me back at the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus and chapter 16. Leviticus 16. What you have here is the description of the Day of Atonement, or you would know it in modern parlance as Yom Kippur. That is the Hebrew expression of it, the Day of Atonement. And it was set forth in Israel because God was sending the message to them. He was laying the foundation of this understanding that if I... If I am going to be approached by my people, remember he had made them his people, but they're sinners. They can't look upon him and live. There has to be a barrier. There, there already is the sin barrier, and there's got to be some shelter that they can be in in order to be God's people in his presence, approaching him, praying to him, even in the priestly line, having a representative of the people go into the place where the presence of God dwells on the mercy seat, 
where the Ark of the Covenant was. All of that was a way for God to set forth a center place where a representative would come and represent the people because they could not come. You were barred from it. And so this particular day was set forth for the line of the people of God who took care of the priestly service, the Levites, that's why it's here in Leviticus. This was the prescription for how a priest would represent the people, the sinful people to a holy God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, after the death of the two sons of Aaron. If you go back into the 10th chapter, which we don't have time to go into, Aaron, being the high priest, consecrated for the work, had two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they were also consecrated for the priestly work to work alongside their father. And the rules were specific, the prescriptions were meticulous, they were consecrated to pay careful attention to them, they went through the ceremonial aspects of all that would set them apart for the work, and they were supposed to do the work properly, and as chapter 10 will tell you when you read it, they came with the wrong prescribed sacrifice. They came with something strange, something God had not commanded. The text doesn't tell us, but they came with something that was less than or had altered the meticulous command of God, and a fire came from God and consumed them immediately. Aaron was there, their own father. It was such a profound moment representing that humans cannot come to God without a barrier and without prescription and without some meticulous way to shelter them. It was a demonstration that if you got outside that prescription, if you went outside the, what God had prescribed, if you had presumed to access God on your own, in your own way, it was over. And Again, we don't have time to go there, but Aaron actually, when the boys were killed on the spot, he, he was silent. Their own father would not say a word. He, of course, would have been shot through and through with grief, but he was silent. That's what's referred to here. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You remember the cloud of God's glory. That was how he visibly represented his glory to the peoples. And there were times such as in 1 Kings 8 and verse 11 where the priests couldn't even stand and minister on behalf of the people because the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. It was so frightening to be around the glory cloud. Don't imagine some fog that you drive through in the morning. Don't imagine some cloudy mist that you see developing in the sky. Imagine something as bright as lightning that's all consuming all around you and does not leave and is full of noise and full of power. You can feel it. They felt it. And the priest couldn't even stand there at times. 
tell Aaron he's not to enter any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And then Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. It's an interesting, the meticulous specificity and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban these are holy garments they'd been ceremonially set apart unto God the cloth themselves itself was not holy they were set apart ceremonially as God prescribed for him to use it and they would never be used for something profane these were holy items to be used in the service and the sacrifice. Nothing about them was to be of ordinary use. You know, sometimes I just think about, by extension, the way that we just completely eliminate all formality out of society, and there's no distinction between the formal and the informal. Well, in the Old Testament, in the people of God, there were very clear distinctions between the profane and the, the sacred. And there was a reason for that, because human beings have to know the difference. One is more significant than the other. We still make distinctions like that as cultures today, globally. Religiously, this was a very careful distinction to be made. You wear these when you do the service, and you don't come in in some casual garment. Pay attention. And then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. There was to be no time between the time of his ceremonial cleansing and the putting on of the holy garments so that there was no way that something could get between he and the holy garments next to his body. There's no contamination. That's the point. No contamination. You have to be uncontaminated to do a service on behalf of God's people in God's presence. And he'll take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. So first, he makes sure that as the high priest, he has confessed his sin, and he has taken care of the sacrifice and the substitute for he and his household first. Can't be in the priestly work if you have not confessed and he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. One will be sacrificed as the substitute upon which the people's sins will be ceremonial placed, ceremonially placed, and the other will be the one that is sent out into the wilderness to represent that God sends sin away from his people. You see the imagery, the depth of it. You see the bottom end of all of this imagery that becomes for us New Testament truth and lessons about sin and about redemption, about righteousness, and ultimately about the fact that no human being on their own can approach God. In verse 9, then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the, Lord, the, the lot for the Lord fell and make it the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. 
And then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Note, by the time you get to verse 12, there's blood everywhere. It is, it is blood running out of animals to their death. There is death and blood unto death all over the imagery of this scene. And then he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of the finely ground sweet incense and he'll bring it inside the veil. So he covered his hands with crushed sweet incense and then he took a censer full of coals from the burning altar and he brought it all within the veil and put the incense on the fire. And as he put the incense on the fire, the cloud of smoke would cover the mercy seat and that would be the, the element that protects Aaron from being killed. It's a barrier. God is still saying, as consecrated as you are and as meticulous and specific as you've been, as ceremonially set apart and even after the slaughter of the animals to deal with your sin, you're still not clean enough to come to me without a barrier. The incense, notice verse 13, he'll put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that's on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. It's interesting, incense, why incense? Because it's not his human smell. God is wanting to fill the place with these other smells prepared according to minute directions. It was commonly the mixture of the frankincense the, and then the sap elements from the proper trees, the drips, and then the galbanum. Both are unknown, basically onit or Onica and Galbanum. These were unknown elements, but they were mixed in with the drips from the tree called Stacte and then frankincense on top of it. God was filling the room with smells that were not humans. And he took the blood of the bull sprinkled it with his finger upon the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, seven being the number of complete consecration or complete atonement, completion. And then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of the impurities. And when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. 
He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides and with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel he shall consecrate it. This is him coming in and out of that place to every altar that was set up and taking blood and sprinkling it on all of it because all of it was contaminated. All of it was man-made. All of it was touched by people who are sinners. God wanted it absolutely cleansed symbolically. And when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall offer the live goat And then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Can you you just process it in your mind? He's cataloging national sinfulness against God, rebellion of leaders and clans and sins of omission and commission, everything that he could possibly represent Just the mental strain and intensity would have been absolutely unbearable. And he will lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. It's never to return. It's never to come back to its indigenous land. It is the representative symbology that God takes sin, the sins of of his people and he sends them as far from them as they can go never to return and then Aaron will come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and he'll leave them there this is all still by the way instruction given to Moses for Aaron to be able to do it And he'll bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. So now he's got to go through another ceremonial cleansing and washing and then he makes atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they'll burn the hides and their flesh and their refuse in the fire. And then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water and then afterward he shall come into the camp. This is a permanent statute for you. And of course, every year, And even between the Yom Kippurs, even between the Days of Atonement, there was preparatory work that had to be done. There, in the Levitical tribe and in the other tribes, they were cataloging sins and weaknesses that had to go with the priesthood to represent them to God. There was in all of this this reminder of how how much of a barrier there is between the sinner and God and even the most consecrated among us. Even the most meticulously set apart in our midst, the Levites could not go in with any kind of casualness. They had a specific job to do when they did it. They were covered in in what is 
to, to be an understanding of the consequences of sin, death and blood. And it wasn't their own, so there they stand alive, and someone else, an animal, a substitute, is dead. And they had to do it every year. So what's hammered home here in the depth of this ceremonial dynamic of the Day of the Atonement are some lessons. The first of which is that no matter how many sacrifices or Yom Kippur's they had, it would never satisfy God's wrath fully. It would never actually propitiate. You young people want to learn a very important word, propitiate. Take away, assuage. Satisfy and swallow up. Assuaging the wrath of God. Making it finished settled, satisfied, poured out, and in that sense, now gone. No matter how many animals were killed, how many substitutes were slaughtered, full satisfaction of God's wrath was never obtained. And God had said, and he would say over and over again to the people, such as in Psalm 51, when David said, you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. It isn't that God wasn't pleased when they would do the Day of Atonement. What David is saying is that if there's sin in the heart, all those sacrifices are not going to change any of it. it. It is purchasing the temporary patience of God for another year with his people. But there was no real access no permanent access. Why? Because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God doesn't despise those things. The prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, some very important Expressions there, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's lesson number one. No matter how many sacrifices, it never, never fully assuaged God's wrath and never fully propitiated. Lesson number two, no matter how clean the sacrifice, the heart was never cleansed of the sinner. No matter how prepared through the year, how set apart the animals, how consecrated the ceremony, how clean the priest, it didn't matter. The sacrifice that was brought would have to be repeated because the hearts of the sinner 
the hearts of God's people were never cleansed from their guilt before God. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 says this in verse 9 and 10. Both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Cannot. Can't happen. All they could do was sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Right. They could set apart another year of God not judging them uh, because they had gone through the prescribed day of atonement he'd called for. And that would temporarily purchase his patience for another year. He would cover over their sin and he would forbear it for another year. Even though the sin was still there, the guilt was still there, it was never propitiated, never assuaged, never dealt with. Lesson number three then. was this, no matter how many times the violent death was repeated, the corruption and violence of sin was still there in the heart. So it was a reminder that the substitute dying could only deal with God's patience that was needed it could never actually take away the violence of sin. So not only were the hearts never fully cleansed from guilt, Israel went back out and sinned for another year with no cleansing. Hebrews 9.25 the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there's another part of the depth of this reality that man cannot access God on his own. Sin is a barrier. Even temporary sacrifices in Israel were just a pointer. They just told you the depth of the sin. They helped you understand that corruption is going to need something more. The heart has to be cleansed. There can, these clean ceremonies don't do anything ultimately to what is needed. Sin is still violent. It's still inside us. We have no power over it. That was the message and the lesson over and over again. And a fourth reality, a fourth lesson that is part of the depth of this theology of the atonement is that no matter how holy the temple was kept, I mean the sacred dimensions, the finery, all of the holy dimensions and the way that they were meticulously cared for, no matter how quote-unquote holy it was, it was never truly undefiled. They still had to take blood and put it on the horns and on the altar and everywhere that a human got near it. And then God had to fill the place with smells that weren't human. Otherwise, the stench of a sinful human would rise to God. Then they had to take the sacrifice of the animal upon which sin was put symbolically as an atonement, take it outside the camp and burn the rest of it. Why? Because now it was contaminated. It was a substitute, sacrificed. It was temporary. And the symbolic sins of the people were 
put, the sins of the people were symbolically put on the animal and then it was killed. And after the blood was let out and the animal had died and the sacrifice had been made, then in that consecrative ceremony, the rest of the animal is taken outside the camp and burned there. So the smoke of this animal that allegedly took the sins in itself for Israel rose to God outside the camp. And then what did the priest have to do after he burned it? He had to go cleanse himself again before he could come back in. All of this was a reminder that it doesn't matter how holy the robes, how holy the temple implements, it doesn't matter how consecrated the priest or the tools, it was never truly undefiled. These things were, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, copies. They were copies of the heavenly things. The last lesson, no matter how much you conformed to the old covenant, it could never deliver. It could only tell you how condemned you were. Man, It just would discourage you, wouldn't it? Another day of atonement to deal with it again. Oh, the priestly line. Oh, they're going to ask our family what our sins have been. Oh, they're going to catalog the sins of our clan again. Oh, and it's just never enough. It's never done. That's right. That's what you passed on to your children. Why do they do that, Dad? Mom, why do they do that? Why is it every year? Because it's never enough. It never does the job. We're never delivered fully. We're always under the condemnation because we don't obey it perfectly. Thankfully, thankfully, God called us as a people and thankfully gave us a priestly line so that the priests could be set apart. And thankfully, he told them what to do in all the details. And thankfully, he gave us a day of atonement. And thankfully, we can have an animal and take the animal and then the priests will have the animals that are sacrificed in the Holy of Holies. And thankfully, there's a place and it's a room and it's a place where the high priest enters once a year, child. And that's... that's Thankfully, the place that God said this can happen so that we can be his people. Otherwise, otherwise, we cannot ever know anything about him. We can never be his people. He can never be our God. Thankfully, he gave us that. But it's never done. It's never enough. However, all that depth was in order that we would know that there is one who brought peace. In fact, we have the one true sacrifice, Hebrews 9. We've looked at this before, but just to remind you before we come to the table... Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. It was necessary for the 
foreshadowings, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these ceremonies. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands but into heaven itself. Who dares go into heaven? Who dares go into heaven? But he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. You say, well, yeah, he's God. He can appear in the presence of God. He's perfect. He came from God. He can go back to God. He's the one who came to earth. And so he is the incarnate one. And he's the one that will ascend back to earth in his exaltation. Of course, he can go into the presence of God. But note what it says at the end. On our behalf. The reason the gospel is so offensive to an unbeliever is because of those three words right there. When you give the gospel to someone, you are saying to them, you must come to understand that you, to have access to God, must have a substitute that does this on your behalf. Because without it, you have no access. Don't you know unbelievers always want to ask that question? So you're saying that people who aren't Christians, who don't believe in Jesus, are going to hell. That's what you're saying. You ever had them challenge you with that? That's what you're saying. Well, of course you're going to say yes, because that's what the Bible says. But what if you just took it a little further and said, Well, let me ask you a question, and this will answer your question. How is a sinner going to have access to God on his own without Jesus? Who's your substitute? I mean, put one in there. If you think people can get to God apart from Jesus Christ, tell me who that is. How are you going to have access to a holy God? Either your God doesn't isn't holy like the God of the scriptures reveals himself to be, or mankind isn't as offensive to God as the Bible says and as we know we are. You must must have no barrier. You you must have some substitute. There must be someone who is a go-between for you, and, and if it's not Jesus, who is it? Who will go for you? The Bible says that he entered into the presence of God on our behalf. My name, your name, was in his heart and in his mind and in his will and in his sacrifice and his love and mercy. We were in him as he went. And he entered into the presence of God with his own consecration his own holiness he didn't have to bathe and wear the priestly garments he didn't have to go through all the rituals he didn't have to create incense in the room that wasn't the smell of himself his his essence what what went to God in the aroma of Christ was purity and holiness he is his own incense 
He is his own offering. So ask the unbeliever, look, if it's so offensive to you that you can't have access to God apart from Jesus, then tell me how you're going to have access. And if you tell me that you yourself in your current state can go on your own before God and, and he must accept you, then you don't know God and you don't know you. You couldn't possibly understand who God is, and you certainly, because of that, don't understand who you are before him. On our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His sacrifice didn't need all that ceremonial consecration because he was without blemish. There wasn't a flaw in him. He brought himself, I'll shed my blood. If you want to know what the gospel is and why Christians are so free, it's because we came to that stumbling stone and we said in our misery and sin and guilt, I need someone to go for me. I have to have it or I, am, or I perish. I have to have it or I have no access. Romans 10 says that when you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's what you're not supposed to say, that you have to create your own sort of climb to heaven and grab salvation on your own. You can't resurrect yourself from death. Death has its hold on the sinner. It is Christ that has to conquer death. So you can't resurrect yourself and climb to heaven, nor can you find a savior and bring him down from heaven, Romans 10 says. You can't do that. You have no access to God, no way to get a savior, no way to go to God, no way to make a sacrifice, no way to resurrect yourself, no way to conquer death. And so why is a Christian so free? Because a Christian came to that moment and said, yes, I, I want to sacrifice on my behalf. I won't try to bring something of my own. And Jesus Christ is the priest without barriers. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6, as I read this morning, a hope that enters into the internal shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. He is the one that went forever. There's no barriers for him. And just like the just like Melchizedek, the Old Testament figure, which has no, has a very mysterious and shadowy uh, beginning because the, we don't know his origin and there's a reason for that because he becomes a type of Christ. Uh, Melchizedek, it was a mystery how he arrived on the scene and he's a priest forever and so there's no beginning to his priesthood, no end to his priesthood. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he ended up going. That is a type, a copy, a prefigure, an image of what would eventually be the forever priesthood of Christ. He made his sacrifice, our conscience is cleansed, it is forever, and he's our priest forever. So I never, I never have to go back. In Israel, they would have felt it, oh, every year it's just never done. For the Christian, it's done. 
when you repent and give your life to Christ and you say, yes, I want a Savior on my behalf, I want a mediator like that, it's done. It's completely done. You say, but as a Christian, don't you still sin? Yeah, but I have no guilt in the eternal sense. My conscience is cleansed from dead works. I now, I now am chastened by my heavenly Father who's my parent, my loving parent. I, he's no judge. I will never be condemned. There's no ceremonial washings. Christ is the ceremony. He is the cleansing. There's no priest ministering every year. Christ is the priest. He died and offered his sacrifice once. It's over. You see, beloved, the bottom end of all of our theology was rooted in those early images in the ancient people of God. Can you imagine the anticipation in a, an Old Testament saint in first century Palestine like Simeon when he sees the face of the Messiah? Can you imagine? He's here. All of this is going to be done. Finally. The promise is here. And when Jesus came out of the grave, it was freedom death is dead love has won Christ has conquered next time you give the gospel and somebody's offended at it tell them that hey I know why you're offended because you think you have access to God without having your heart cleansed you think you could cleanse it on your own? You think you should be enough on your own? You demand that God should accept you on your own? You think God shouldn't really be as offended because after all, who is he to think that he can judge humanity? We're here, we do what we want, and who is he to dictate what's, what should be? And tell him, if that's where you've been, I understand your offense. But you have to face that offense because the Old Testament people of God knew as recorded in the book of Leviticus that you don't have access without a sacrifice and you can't, you can't bring yourself. We're just a stench. The smell of humans contaminating everything. And so Christ in his holiness and purity has to cleanse all of our self-worship, all of our contamination, all of our corruption. And he does so in the death and his burial and in his resurrection. He covers the sinner. When you repent and turn to Christ as your only priest and mediator, you're free, completely cleansed. That's what we celebrate tonight. If you don't know the Lord, you can't, you can't partake of the Lord's table. It, it would be judgment to you, Paul told the church at Corinth. If you don't know Christ, then what you'd be doing is you'd be taking the symbolic cup and the bread, which represent, Jesus says, the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood in his death for sinners as the perfect substitute. These symbolize his body which bears our sins all the way to death in the shedding of his blood. You would be 
taking those into your physical body, but you'd be doing it in some sort of act of alleged worship when you don't know him. And so it would mean nothing to you ultimately, and it would be offensive to God. First Corinthians 11 says you'd be drinking and eating judgment to yourself. Whereas for the Christian, we celebrate the Lord's table, as he said, in remembrance of him until he comes. We remember the cross. We're free of our guilt. That's what we're celebrating. And so to partake of the cup and the bread is a reminder that he bore our sins in his body and they're now taken away. Our sin is removed out into the wilderness as far from us as could be. And the death of a substitute happened. It was Christ who shed his blood for us. That's what we celebrate when we take the bread and when we drink the cup, we celebrate the new covenant in his blood. That's what Christians do in the Lord's table. And even we are warned as believers to make sure that we don't come to the Lord and partake of it when we have unconfessed things in our hearts. Would you bow for a moment?